0: Kids, you can go ahead and head downstairs. Um, Bob is not with us this morning. He and his wife, Kristen, have traveled to Michigan, where they're picking up their daughter, Kylie, who has been working very hard, I hear it, the past month, on work crew at a Young Life camp. So they will be traveling back this week. This morning, we have a guest we've had with us many times. Brad Edgar is going to share the word with us this morning and just continue on the sermon series about prayer. So thank you for joining us. Yeah. Is this on? Hey, I did it right. I turned it on and hooked it up. Let's start this morning. Oh, I've got some neat artwork up here. I don't know whose that is. Um... <clears throat> Let's start this morning with the reading of God's words. If you can put that up there for me, it'd be great. Starting in uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And then 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for the song that reminds us of your steadfast love that endures forever. The way you do not give up on us, Lord. That you are constantly working in our hearts, calling out to us. God, I pray that this morning the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart will be pleasing before you. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So, uh, it is just always such a privilege and an honor for me to come and speak at Wellspring Church here in St. Joseph. This place is such a neat church. It's such a neat, you guys are such a neat community of people that God is really moving in. And there's so many folks I can look out and see that really mean a lot to me. And, uh, and so it's an honor to be here. You guys have really done, uh, you know, Hold a special place in my heart. And it's an honor that Bob asked me to be part of this sermon series on the prayers of Paul. Um, it really is kind of neat. I, I went back and listened to some of the, the sermons, and I went back to Bob's introductory sermon on this, this series of uh, sermons on the, the prayers of Paul. And he stated uh, in that introductory teaching, he stated two goals for this whole series, and one of the goals is, as we study the, the prayers of Paul, is to learn together about how we're supposed to pray for one another, right? What we should pray for, how we should pray, and how we should pray for one another in the community, right? And what is it when we pray for each other? What, what is it we're trying, we want to see happen in, in the lives of the people around us? That's the one goal. The second goal was to, to learn through the prayers of Paul, what it is God wants to do with us individually when we pray. That prayer is not just about the other guy. It's also about God doing something in us as we pray. And Bob made another statement that I thought was really insightful. And that is when you can really learn a lot about somebody when you listen to them pray. Right? You learn a lot about what's on their mind you learn a lot about their life. You learn about, a lot about their priorities. You learn a lot about the way they just look at the world. And we have this really neat opportunity that uh, we've been given in Scripture to, to be a fly on the wall and listen in on Paul praying. I mean, what a cool opportunity to, to have that we can kind of go back a couple thousand years, and like listen in on Paul praying for for the for the people he writes these letters to. In this case, the, the church in Philippi and the church in, in Thessalonica. And it's cool to learn what is Paul teaching us about how we should pray for one another when we listen in to him praying, and what Paul is teaching us about ourselves when we listen in on him praying. So let's go put, put Philippians back up there real quick. I want to look at just verses three through five at first. And I want to try to find out what can we learn about how we're supposed to pray for one another and what God wants to do in our own lives when we pray. Uh, verse, starting verse three. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, or y'all if you're from Texas, Making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Okay, real quick, what jumps out at you when, you when you read that prayer up there, when you see that? Give me like a one-word response of what just jumps out the, off the, the words of the Bible when you, think, when you read that. Anybody? Joy? Yeah. I see joy. I think thankfulness, right? Paul's thankful. What else jumps out at you? What's that? Partnership. Remembrance. Remembrance, Memories, right? What a cool passage. I mean, it's obviously reading. I mean, all those things come to my mind too. Joy and thankfulness and memories and partnership. You know, it's obvious reading that, that Paul has a really deep connection to these people. He really loves them dearly. And we also have the privilege of where we're at and having God's word is, is we can, uh, can kind of put, put ourselves in a little time capsule and go back. We can actually go back and visit. When, when Paul says your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, we can actually go back and visit and see that first day. We do that by turning to Acts 16. You, don't, you can do that. If you have a Bible, you can do that now. Or if you're like me, I, I get the Bible on my phone almost all the time because my eyes can see it better. But if you turn to Acts 16, and maybe later today you can really read the whole chapter. But it, it goes back, takes us back to the very first day of Paul with that church in Philippi. Acts 16, verse 11 is where it start, starts. And Luke, who's the author of Acts, gives us a record of the arrival of this small band of messengers into the city of Philippi. And it's not a very impressive scene at first. It's, it's outside the city. It's down by the river. It's a group of women. It kind of looks like maybe a picnic happening. And these, these, this band of messengers walks up, Luke and Timothy and Silas and Paul. And it'd be hard to tell seeing them walk up on this little scene by the river that that these guys were causing trouble all over the place, everywhere they went. Jump ahead a little bit to Acts 17, and, and uh, somebody else is describing these guys, and it says they're causing trouble everywhere. They're turning the world upside down everywhere they go. In Acts 16, starting in verse 11, Luke uh, talks about these messengers coming into Philippi. And it was, a, it was a monumental movement of the gospel. It was the first time the gospel ever came to the European continent. Philippi is, is located like in today's northern Greece area. This is the first time the gospel ever made it to the European continent. It was a major moving forward of the gospel. And, and Luke, the, the account of Luke tells us this incredible story about uh, one of those women in that meeting down by the river, uh, Lydia, how she became a follower of Jesus that day and was baptized. And he goes on to tell the story of, of, a, of a demon-possessed, fortune-telling slave girl. And the and story of Paul casting out those demons and, and money-grubbing uh, slave owners and, and, a, and a, a mob, an angry mob, and, and beatings with rods. And, and jail, and Paul and Silas singing and praising God at midnight, and an earthquake, and jail doors opening, and a suicidal jailer who cries out to Paul, "What must I do to be saved?" And another incredible uh, uh, salvation story of that jailer in a in a middle of the night baptism, and 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 eating together and rejoicing and fellowship. See, Paul was there when it first began. He was connected to them. He loved them. He was there in the beginning with them. He was there when God started this work in them. And he shared all those great memories. I can picture Paul as he's writing this letter to send to the Philippians. And in his mind as he's writing it, he's picturing it. He knows that when when it gets read before the congregation, that that right there in the front row is Lydia. And over here in the room is the jailer and his wife and his kids. And he probably looked down and he saw the scars that he still had from the beatings with the rods. And he thought, man, I was there with you guys and you were there with me at the beginning of this whole thing. And it's cool. It's what's cool in this passage is that Paul is remembering all this stuff with Thanksgiving and he's honoring those memories. There's something special about that, right? When I, uh, before, I, I, I ran a, uh, a few years ago, I ran a nonprofit. And one of my jobs as running this nonprofit was this major building and relocation project. It was like a million-dollar project, and it took a long time and a lot of sweat and a lot of work and a lot of effort and a lot of long nights, right? And I remember the day we opened the doors to the building, and, 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 and we walked in, and everybody was admiring it. It's like, it's a really cool building, and they're saying, this is neat and this is neat. But when I walked in, you know, I looked, at, I looked at carpet, and I looked at the rafters, and I looked at the windows, and I looked at the colors on the wall, and they, they weren't just those things. I, I, every piece of that building had a story. Because I was there from the beginning and I was there when it was nothing but just a plan on a piece of paper. And I looked around and I could see in the people of the eyes of the folks who were there with me from the beginning in that project. And I saw that they were doing that too. They're like, man, that's not just a chair. There's a story behind that chair. Let me tell you what it is. There's something really special about that kind of bond. And I know you guys in this congregation, you have some of those same kind of memories some of you have been here from the start of this church and you probably look around at this church and you go man you know that's not just a i don't know it's not just a pulpit or a stool there's a story behind that and you look around at each other you know it's like when i look at dave hine who i went to college with and rich fox you know when i shake their hand and give them a hug i'm not just looking at them i'm you know I'm, there's memories there. We go way back. There's a bond there. And what we can learn from Paul is that we should cherish those memories. We should be thankful for them. We should remember them. Even the hard ones. You know, there's, that was a tough deal. If you read that story in Acts 16, I mean, these guys got beat with rods and thrown in jail. But even in that, and if you, if you also know a little bit about Philippians, Paul was writing this while he was imprisoned to the church in Philippi. And yet he still fought back with joy on, on those memories. You guys have that same thing here in this church when you look at one another. Honor and cherish those memories, even the scars of those memories. Because there's something really important about it. It builds a bond and a strong bond. That's different than anything else. And so Paul was praying with joy. And, he had, and as he prayed for them, he had fond memories of, of laughter with them and, and shared battles that they had and, and shared scars that they had. And he prayed with great affection because he loved them. But what did he exactly pray for them? Did Paul pray for, when he prayed, and you know, I pray that you guys are all stay healthy I pray God's blessings on you. I pray for prosperity of your church. And I'm gonna pray that a lot of people come to your church there in Philippi so that you can grow and and then uh, have a big building program and then build a nice building on the suburbs of Philippi and have a great church building. (laughs) Did he pray any of those things for them? He didn't. Not any of those things are bad things to pray for one another, right? Pray for safety and health and Blessing and protection, right? Those are all good things to pray for, but that's not what Paul prayed for these people who he loved. He prayed that God would, in verse 6, you can put it back up there, Philippians if you can, he prayed that God who began a good work in them would complete it. And he reveals to us in this little passage that, what, that good work that's going on with them was started by God and would be completed by God, but he's praying that this good work would occur in their life, whatever that good work is, right? It's not really obvious in this, this passage, but let's, let's turn uh, the slide to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And this gives us the answer. This is another prayer that Paul is praying for a church. He wrote a letter to the church in Thessalonica. <clears throat> Actually, if you stay in Acts, uh, you'll, you'll learn that as soon as Paul and his band of guys left Philippi, they went to Thessalonica down the road. And there's a story of how it started there, how he preached in the synagogue and several people uh, uh, were believers that day and they formed a community and he was there at the beginning with them too. And this is his prayer for the church in Thessalonica. He says, I pray may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. So that good work that Paul is praying for the Philippians and now he's praying for the Thessalonians is the, is the work, the good work Of sanctification. What is sanctification? Sanctification is kind of a $40 seminary word that uh, theologians use a lot. But simply put, sanctification means uh, to be set apart and made holy for a holy purpose. Sanctification means being set apart and to be made holy for a holy purpose. So Paul is praying that for these churches. I pray that God would set you apart and make you holy for a holy purpose. In their context in the first century, they would have, they would have kind of seen that through the eyes of the temple and the sacrificial system. Right? They're all, we don't have that anymore, not even close to that, but back then that was part of their culture and they would have understood that because they understood that like for for the temple sacrificial ritual that there were tools and like cups and bowls and vessels and different things that are used in the sacrifice in the temple. And there were all these rituals and rules about when when a cup is going to be used in that temple ritual, it had to be cleansed and go through certain rituals to be made holy, to set it apart from all the other cups on the cupboard. And it's cleansed and it's sanctified and then it's used for a holy purpose, right? And sanctification, the root of that word, we get other words from it, you can probably think of a lot of them. One is sanctuary, right? You can think of a church building that's often called a sanctuary, And what that means is it's a building that's set apart from the other buildings on the block for a holy purpose. Or you can think in terms of like a wildlife sanctuary, right? It's a piece of land that's set apart for wildlife to like thrive and be safe, right? And prosper. Sanctification. So Paul, what Paul is praying again is that he's praying and he's asking God to sanctify them. He's asking God, he's asking God to make progress in the process of them being conformed into the likeness of Christ. So let's let's uh, dig a little deeper here in this idea of sanctification and talk about what that really means, because sanctification, I think. Uh, First of all, sometimes when you talk about words like sanctification and justification and stuff like that, our eyes can kind of glass over and we kind of go, ah, that's kind of over my head. But it's really an important concept. And if we're really going to learn from the prayers of Paul of how we're supposed to pray for one another and how prayer is supposed to affect our own lives, this is important, right? Because this is what Paul is praying for these churches, sanctification. So the first thing we need to know about sanctification is this. It's different than justification. Sanctification and justification are two different things, but we get them confused sometimes in the church. We can get them confused. Now, justification is a legal term. So when a person is ruled not guilty by a judge, right, a judge is making a legal declaration, It's a declarative statement, justification is. Justification is simply being declared not guilty. So spiritually speaking, right? I once was guilty, but now God has declared me not guilty. Justification doesn't address or do anything about or require anything from my character. I'll say that again. Justification... Doesn't address or do anything about or require anything from my character. We are justified by faith and faith alone through belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Justification. God simply takes my condemned status and declares me not guilty. Justification changes my status, but not really my character in that moment. I'm still in need of a renovation. Because we all bring to our newfound faith stuff that is inconsistent with God. Still talking about justification here. We are declared not guilty and then the process begins of becoming what we have been declared. Justification is legal, it's external, and it's objective. Sanctification is internal and subjective. One is instant and declarative, justification. The other happens over time. One is instantaneous, the other is a process, sanctification. Two different things. And first we are justified, and then begins the process of conforming me to the image of his son. Don't get it wrong, the order wrong. Justification first, then sanctification. It's in that order. And sanctification is renovation. So, let's say rich, A king visits the king of England. I guess it's the queen of England, right? Comes and visits St. Joe and and goes to Rich Fox's house and says, Rich, I want to buy your house. Makes you a great offer, right? Can't turn it down. You sell it to him. This is a pretty crude illustration about it, but it kind of gets the point across, right? Gives you the money. You sign the deed. It is the house. The house belongs to the king. The status of that house has changed. But now the renovation begins. And the queen starts coming in, and instead of it being richest furniture and richest wall colors and richest design, they begin to renovate that house and make that house a house that is fit for a queen. Right? Like I said, it's kind of a crude illustration of it, breaks down in a lot of ways, but it really gets the point across of the difference between justification and sanctification. And let me make this point really clear you don't have to become righteous. To be declared righteous We get that confused sometimes Sometimes we think about church And we think about God And we think about this Christian walk And we go Man I got to get my life together first You know I got to get my act together I got to clean myself up And then maybe I can be forgiven Then maybe I can do this Christian thing It's the wrong order God justifies us first, and then the process of sanctification begins. So we've made it clear uh, when we talk about sanctification that it's different than justification. But but here's another important point. Even though sanctification and justification are different, they go together. You cannot separate the two. The sanctification package goes with the justification package. Right? Right? They, they are distinct, but they cannot be separated. You can't disengage the two from one another. You see, to Paul, and, and we gather this from, from reading his letters like Philippians and Thessalonians and all of his other writings. You see, to Paul, it, it's absurd to think that somebody could be justified through faith, and yet they, their, their life bears absolutely no resemblance to the life of Jesus Christ. It's absurd for Paul to think that you could be saved by grace and yet you have no desire to follow Jesus. It doesn't make any sense. The justification process package and the sanctification package go together. Some people want to be justified, just kind of get saved, right? Or whatever you want to call it. Uh, get your fire insurance so you don't go to hell, and then I'm going to skip the sanctification piece. Paul's like, I can't imagine that. You cannot separate the two. How can one say that they are a follower of Jesus and have absolutely no resemblance to him? Jesus himself said, If you love me, feed my sheep. He said, If you love me, follow my commands. In fact, this process of sanctification, that process of God conforming us into the likeness of Christ, is actually one of the tests of our faith. You read, you read a little letter of 1 John or you read the book of Hebrews in the New Testament and you realize that both of those, both of those letters or those books in the Bible, uh, they're, they're, uh, the people in those congregations were, were battling false teachers. And they were confused. They're like, well, who's, who's telling the truth? Like, is this guy right or is this guy right? I'm, I'm confused about who's really a follower of Jesus. And one of the tests is, is this test of sanctification. They say, hey, if somebody's saying, I am justified, you know, I've been saved, I'm whatever, but their life bears no resemblance to the life of Christ, or they don't have to seem to have any desire to even try To follow the example of Jesus. Then you can pretty much be assured that they are false teachers. Because sanctification is going to happen. It comes along with the justification piece. So we learned that justification and sanctification are two different things. But they cannot be separated, right? We've also learned they cannot be separated. Here's another important point about sanctification. And that's this. The work of sanctification and justification, both, the work is done by God, not by us. Right? In in the Philippians verse, you can put it up again, it says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. He makes it really clear there. God has started this good work of sanctification in you and he will be the one who will complete it. See, we get that mixed up sometimes too. A lot of times we think, well, well, justification is God's work. Sanctification is my work, right? But that's not what scripture tells us. Both justification and sanctification come by faith. Now, with justification, we really don't bring anything to the table. Faith, belief in Jesus. Sanctification, we do bring something to the table. It's called obedience. But what we have to understand is that we cannot even begin to be obedient. I'll go even a little further. We can't even begin to want to be obedient without the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God is doing the work. And we find, as, as the sanctification process happens in our life, we find that we suddenly can have the strength to, be, to follow him. We find that we have an inner compulsion of love, and we begin to want to follow Jesus. We begin to want to be... Uh, sanctified and made holy for a holy purpose because of our love for Him, because of what He did when He justified us on the cross, because of the free gift of grace. So I'll say it again. Sometimes we think we've got to, you know, do the work of sanctification. But I'm telling you, people, we can't even begin not just to do it, but even to want to be obedient without the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we should be praying that for one another. That God would be working in our lives to make us holy as he is holy. So, we've learned justification, sanctification are two different things, but they go together, right? We've also learned That God does the work of both justification and sanctification. It is God working in us, not us doing the work. The next thing I want us to know about sanctification is this. Is that sanctification is not just subtraction. It's also addition. I think we get this wrong sometimes when we think about this idea of sanctification or being made holy. Certainly, sanctification is subtracting sin from our life yes it does mean that that's part of the process it is subtracting sin out of our life but it's not just that don't stop there what we need to realize is that this process of sanctification is actually addition it as as God sanctifies us and he does his work of sanctification as us it expands our capacity to love it expands our capacity to serve. It expands our capacity to experience joy. It expands our capacity to forgive. It expands our capacity to be free. That's what happens when we are being sanctified. And way too often we miss it. We, we get a narrow view that sanctification and being made holy as he is holy is just about like getting sin out of our life part of it. But that's a narrow view of it. Sanctification is adding the power of the Holy Spirit. It's adding the peace of God. It's adding strength and direction and hope to our lives. It's addition, not just subtraction. And, and the 1 uh, Thessalonians passage put that up again. Paul is praying that we would be sanctified, that we'd understand this process of sanctification, of God working in us, and and making us holy, and setting us apart for a holy purpose. And and, uh, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. It's an important point. God doesn't just want to sanctify part of us. He wants all of us. I think one of the versions says, and may the God of peace himself sanctify you through and through. All the way through to the core of who we are. You know, theologians, I don't know if you know this or not, but it's true, theologians have debated for probably centuries about whether humans are uh, made up of two parts or three parts. A dichotomy or a trichotomy. You know, are we made of soul and body or are we made of spirit, soul, and body? And these theologians have these debates. They write books on them and articles and stuff. And Obviously, this, this passage in Thessalonians is, is kind of a trichotomist view, right? Body, soul, and spirit. But you know what? It doesn't matter. The point is not whether there's two parts of us or three parts of us or 150 parts of us. The point Paul is making is that he wants all of us. You know, I have, as I, as I thought about this, this uh, concept, I had this uh, picture in my mind that, that, that kind of illustrated it for me, it's like, you know, say, uh, you know, I'm at my house in Blue Springs, and, and, and Jesus somehow sends me this message, he says, you know, a text or something, I don't know how Jesus would communicate, and say, like, I'm coming to your house, and I'm like, yeah, awesome, and I clean everything up, you know, it's good, right, you guys are like us, right, it's, you want to invite people over once in a while just so you do a deep clean, right, you got to be motivated, right. Yeah, and the kids are like, why are we doing this? We don't live like this all the time. I'm like, that's why we invite people over, so we'll get it clean. But like, we're cleaning it up. We're making it nice. We got everything set. And Jesus comes to the door, and we, we invite him in. And, and we're like, come into my living room. It's, it's perfect. It's spotless, and it's ready, and this chair's here for you. And Jesus like looks at this closed door over there, and he goes, what's in there? Oh, Jesus, you don't want to go in there. I, I had this place all ready for you right here. Look how beautiful it is. He's like, "Mm, I think I want to go in there. No, Jesus, that's where I got all my crap hidden. Right? But he does that, not to expose us or to embarrass us, but because he loves us and he wants to sanctify us through and through. All the way. Completely. There's a story, I I doubt it's true, but it might be true, it's a great illustration, (laughs) is that Way back in the 1500s, I think it was the 1500s, uh, Michelangelo, right? He sculpted his masterpiece, the, the David. Some of you have probably seen it in real life. I haven't ever seen it. It's in Italy. But his, his, his masterpiece, the sculpture of David, I mean, it's just an unbelievable piece of sculpture out of marble. And the story goes that he was at, that people were admiring it, and, and Michelangelo was there, and one of the people turned to Michelangelo and said, How did you turn, like, this massive piece of marble and, and, you know, formless block of marble into that sculpture, that beautiful, perfect sculpture of David? And the story goes, Michelangelo turned to him and he said, I just chipped away everything that didn't look like David. And that's a picture of God's sanctification process in our life. Another picture that illustrates this, it's like, it's like a formless blob of clay thrown down on a wheel of a potter, right? And the potter sits down and he, and he cranks the wheel and through friction and pressure and the work of his hands, he fashions that formless blob of clay into a vessel that's beautiful and useful. That's the picture of sanctification, that God has for us. And he wants to sanctify us completely. And we should be praying that for one another. We should be praying that for ourselves. And to know that Christ, this, this sanctification is not just for the, just to make, sanctif- make you holy just for the sake of making you holy, Right? So you can walk around with a halo around. No, this process has a purpose. And what we need to understand and gather from these, these prayers is that Paul is saying, God may God sanctify you and make you holy because he has a holy purpose for your life. You see, in Christ, we all have a purpose. We're not made to, to live just meaningless, directionless lives. God is doing this for a purpose for our lives, and it's a holy purpose. Now, your purpose might be a worldwide impact. You know, I don't know what it is. You might preach like Billy Graham or, or sing like, I, I won't say who because it'll date me if I say it. You know, and you might impact the whole world, but you know what? And that might be your holy purpose, but more than likely, your holy purpose might be at, at home with your kids or with your spouse. And that God is shaping you and sanctifying you so you can make an impact in their life in this world and for eternity. Or your holy purpose might be at work with the people you work with to be a light to them and to make an impact in their life for eternity. You know, it might, I don't know what it is, but I promise you, God has a purpose for your life and it's a holy purpose and the process of this sanctification is to allow you to be set apart for that purpose. Last week in the sermon that Bob taught on Ephesians 3 uh, in the prayer of Paul in in those verses, you know, he gave some really tough challenges in that sermon. He kind of challenged you guys about love and about acceptance and about unity, right, and about forgiveness. He challenged you guys pretty good. Now I hope you realize that none of these, you can't meet any of these challenges without God carrying out the work of sanctification in your life. You see, the test of sanctification, like if you want to kind of look at your own life and go, boy, is this process going on in my life? This is another thing we get wrong sometimes. But the test of sanctification is not perfection, right? It's not, it's not to like, so that I can walk around in, with some sinless, uh, better than everybody else kind of life. No, the test of our sanctification is not perfection, but it's progress. It's continuity. Now, my progress looked different than yours. Sometimes that progress is really slow. Sometimes progress looks like two steps back and a big step backwards, or two steps forward and a big step backwards. But the test is, can you say, you know, a couple years ago, I could never have forgiven somebody for that. But some way I found forgiveness for them. You know, a few years ago, I never would have loved somebody that looked like that or talked like that or acted like that. But you know what? I really love that person. Or to say, you know, before I knew Christ, I never could have stood against that temptation. I would have fallen so fast. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't even think, think about it. But now, somehow, I've got the strength to resist. And not fall again for that temptation. The test of our sanctification is progress. But it's not just looking back, right? It's also looking forward. It's looking forward knowing that this process is not going to end in my life. Right? Paul, in these passages, he makes it clear that God's going to complete it. God started the work. He will complete it. But I'm going to tell you something. He's not going to complete it next week in you. He's not even going to complete it like when you reach maybe your 20th spiritual birthday. You know, it's not like, oh, I've been a Christian 20 years ago today, and now I am fully sanctified. What does he say? Put, put, uh, put the, uh, the first verse, Philippians. You can put either one up, but it doesn't matter, Right? When is it going to be completed? In the day of Jesus Christ. It won't be complete in any of us until he comes back again or until we go to meet him. Then it will be complete. So I hate to break this to you. If there's anybody sitting out there today going, I'm done. You know, I've learned everything I can learn. I've been sanctified through and through. And I can just cruise on in the rest of my life. I don't care how old you are. If you're a teenager, if you're a little kid, I guess all the little kids are out of here. If you're a teenager or you're an old guy like me, it ain't done yet. That process is still going on. God is still working in us. The Holy Spirit is still working in us saying, We need to grow and and forgive in ways we've never forgiven before, to love in ways we've never loved before, to serve in ways we've never served before, to find freedom in ways we've never found freedom before, right? So what do we learn about sanctification? Well, we learn a lot about sanctification, but what do we learn about praying for one another, right? I think we learned clearly that we should be praying for sanctification for each other. Praying for that process of sanctification for each other. And that, like Paul with the Philippians, that we should be praying that with with joy and with thankfulness, honoring and cherishing the connections that you guys have with one another, the memories that you have with one another, good or bad. Cherishing them, honoring them, being thankful for them. Praying with joy for one another that we would be sanctified. That we shouldn't just be praying, not that any things are bad, but we shouldn't just be praying for health and blessing and protection and all those things that we all pray for. We should take it a step deeper and pray for sanctification for one another and to realize that God is still working on all of us. And you know what? Here's a cool thing that happens. When you start thinking that way about one another... You know, we look at each other and we go, you know, God's still working on you. That process of sanctification is still going on in your life. If you start thinking about that way for one another and start praying that way for one another, what you find is that you give a lot more grace. And you really judge one another much less harshly when you think that way. You know, because you go, man, they really hurt me. Or that was a really boneheaded move. But God is working in their life. And I pray, God, that you would continue that process of sanctification in their lives. What what do we learn about ourselves? Well, we learned that we should pray that God would continue to do the work of sanctification in us. This can be a hard prayer because if you didn't realize it or not yet, sanctification is not all butterflies and rainbows, right? Sanctification can be hard. Sometimes sanctification comes through trials. Sometimes sanctification comes through pain. Sometimes sanctification comes through waiting. Sometimes sanctification comes through falling flat on our face and failure. So it's a hard prayer to pray for ourselves, right? Sanctify me, God, because it might not always be easy. But we should be praying that. That God would do that work in us so that we could learn to forgive and to love and to trust and to live in ways we never lived before, even if we'd been a Christian for a long time. We should pray that God would make progress in us, that we would make progress in following his example, to be holy and obedient like him, not so that we would gain justification, but because we have been justified. You might be sitting out there today and going, well, Brad, I don't think I can do this process or or even partake in this process of sanctification or allowing God to do that in me because I haven't prayed that prayer yet or had that faith or trusted that, uh, had that belief yet to even have justification in my life. If that's your case, that has to come first. You don't have to get your life together first, right, right? That comes after, and it comes by God working. So let's pray for each other and for ourselves today that God would allow us to make progress in following the example of Jesus, that we would be holy and obedient as he was holy and obedient to his Father, Not so that we, like I said, gain justification, but because we have been justified. Motivated by an inner compulsion of love for our Savior. Not out of duty, but out of love. And that is sanctification. And I am sure of this, that he who calls you is faithful. And he will surely do it in each of you. He will finish the good work of sanctification. Let's pray. Father, I thank you beyond words for the work that you do and are doing in each of our lives, God. I pray, Father, that the good work that you have started in the people in this church, that you would bring it to completion, God. That their whole spirit their body and their soul would be kept blameless, God. That you would do your work. That the people in this congregation would learn and continue to grow so that they could love one another, forgive one another, encourage one another, serve one another in ways they've never done before, Lord. Sanctify this church, Jesus, and sanctify me, God by the power of your Holy Spirit working in all of us. We ask these things. Amen.